and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, policy, and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, you and I were in uh, Vancouver uh, last week for the Peaks Bet on Canada events. And one thing I noticed about the city, it was my first time there, was there were so many Teslas driving around. There were a ton of electric cars. Uh, it seemed like... A lot know, of every, really fancy Ubers. Yeah, every Uber you got was a Tesla almost. And I'm not entirely sure why that is, but that is a, a major difference between Vancouver and Toronto that I noticed, where it's still relatively rare that you see uh, an electric car on the road here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the EV, the electric vehicle transition, is in full swing out in BC, but I guess that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe why that piqued your interest, which is maybe why it piqued mine, is because we're talking a lot about electric vehicles lately, um, especially within the context of the broader EV transition. We're hearing a lot of really interesting announcements around the amount of money that is going into building factories here about how you know Canada can carve out a meaningful role. And I feel like, I don't know, uh, adoption is still feels like a long way away, but it's something that seems to be coming whether or not we like it. But yeah, no, BC seems to be completely bought in. Yeah, it does seem like we're at uh, an important juncture, I guess, for the EV transformation uh, that we've been hearing so much about. And especially with all that's been going on with the labor negotiations at the big three automakers. Um, I think there is a lot to talk about here as to where we're headed with electric vehicles next. So we have a great guest on to walk us through all of that today and what's going on at the big three automakers when it comes to the rollout of EVs. Brian Kingston is the president and CEO of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Why don't we start with what's been in the news lately around EVs, which is the uh, labor negotiations going on at the big three automakers, both in Canada and the U.S. Here in Canada, the union now has deals with all three of the big car makers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. And that happened with you know very short or no strikes, um, all resolved relatively quickly. So, Brian, maybe you can just give us your thoughts on uh, why we got such a quick resolution and what that means for the industry. Uh, well, I think, um, first of all, I mean, great news uh, from a Canadian perspective that we did get to agreements relatively quickly um, with limited uh, disruption. We still have to uh, see the final ratification of the agreement between Stellantis and Unifor that was most recently struck. Um, but the reason this is so encouraging is because you know the industry is in the midst of a major transformation right now as automakers dedicate literally billions of dollars to electrification. And with transformation comes competitive challenges, new players into the market. And we want to make sure that the North American automakers are positioned to succeed. Um, so any delays in terms of uh, disruptions to manufacturing, they have an impact. So I think this is positive news that we're going to hopefully be through this quickly and it will allow the automakers to continue on with these very uh, aggressive plans to uh, to deliver EVs to customers. Let's talk about where we are in this whole uh, transition, Brian, because it seems like there's like headline after headline in terms of just like what 
these automakers are doing, how much they're making, how much they're charging, how many people are driving these things. Um, and I want to get a sense of what adoption actually looks like in Canada. You had flipped me before this conversation, uh, a bit of a map, and I'll try to explain it for people listening in where there's two maps that I'm looking at here. One is an incentive gap, and then one is a bit of a charging gap. And I feel like those will play into the the answer that you could give me on this in terms of in terms of adoption. But in short, what does adoption look like right now in Canada and what are kind of the the hurdles standing in the way between where we are now and, you know, where uh, government and, you know, everyone else wants us to get to? Yeah, well, we've made um, good progress over the past couple of years when it comes to adoption. If you look at the second quarter sales figures for 2023, uh, just over 10% of, of vehicle sales were uh, were electric. Um, so um, that that's encouraging progress. That's largely been because we're seeing more and more models coming into the market. So if you look back to, say, 2012, we had three models in the Canadian market. This year, uh, we're at uh, 77 models. We expect another mm-hmm. 40 models uh, next year. And what's really exciting about this is that it's it's not um, you know what you would think of as your sort of traditional electric vehicle, maybe a small car. What you're now seeing is auto manufacturers electrifying the types of vehicles the Canadians in particular love, uh, which are SUVs and pickups trucks, where we have huge uh, proportion of the auto fleet in that segment. So as you see more of those types of vehicles coming into the market, um, that should help drive adoption. That said, 10% is a long way from 100%. And as you've uh, outlined, you know we've looked at some of the the things that need to happen between now and 100% sales, um, and we have some serious gaps on both uh, the affordability side of things as well as the charging infrastructure that's going to be required to power this fleet. And just one more number to leave you with: even at 10%, you know that sounds good. We've got we've seen some good progress, but if you actually look at the on-road fleet in Canada, so all of the vehicles that people are driving right now, the zero emission vehicle share of that is 1%. Uh, So we've Mm. got charging challenges already with just 1% of vehicles being electrified. Can I ask you about the models before we move on to some of those other problems there? Because that's that's really interesting to me. I saw this chart on on Twitter yesterday that was just showing the most popular uh, car models by state in the U.S., and it was just trucks every every single state i think except for like two was trucks and maybe california was a tesla but uh i'm curious now that we do have some of these electric trucks and suvs coming online how much of new ev sales are they making up like are they really driving a lot of the new sales in the market um, not yet, and that's simply because um, we don't have a full suite of pickup truck, electrified mm-hmm. pickup truck models in the market. So Ford was uh, very quick into this space. Obviously, the Ford F-150, the gas power, is the, the most popular selling vehicle um, in North America. So they've provided an electric version of that, the F-150 Lightning. It's been very popular, a lot of demand for it, but they're the first. You will see General Motors uh, as well as Ram coming forward over the next couple of years with with electrified trucks. But yeah, to your point, I mean, pickup trucks are hugely, hugely popular in North America. Over 80% of vehicle sales in Canada are in the SUV or pickup truck category. Um, So this is where we see 
real potential uh, because as those those um, electrified trucks come into the market with increasing range, if you look at the Lightning, for example, we're talking about 500 kilometers of range. I mean, this is wow. this is pretty significant, and it's because automakers are spending so much on this technology that battery range and performance is getting better and better and better. So. I think you're going to see more uptake in that in that segment of the market uh, as more uh, models come into it. So is performance for these cars where consumers want it to be? Like it's 500 kilometers. Is that is that a good enough range? I know it's a good enough range for like a like a sedan. But is that considered uh, is that considered good for good enough for people to switch over? Yeah, I think I think for mass adoption, um, you know, right now we are still in that category of early adopters, people that just love a new technology um, and they're excited to be kind of first in. If we're going to get to a place of mass adoption, there are a few things that have to happen. First of all, the range question has to completely go away. Um, so the technology needs to get to a point where a consumer will know that they actually get the exact same range as a gas-powered or in a perfect world, an EV is going to give them even more range. And we're already seeing signs that that's, that's a possibility with all the, the investment in the R&D that's going into to battery. Um, the other challenge we have, which is very unique to Canada, uh, we got a cold climate here. Um, and batteries don't perform uh, as well in cold weather. Sometimes we're talking a 20 to 30% range penalty. So again, um, more investments are being put into that to try and address that, but we're going to have to factor that in, particularly because not only is Canada cold, but it's huge. Um, you know, we're talking 1.2 million kilometers of two-lane public road in this country. Um, so we've got to make sure that all of those potential impediments are dealt with, and that's how we get to that mass adoption 100% target. Is there uh, any research done, or do you have a sense of like the threshold at which consumers say, you know what, 600 kilometers, that's enough for me, that's fine. Like just thinking about myself, I don't really drive more than 500 kilometers without stopping to take a break or something, get some lunch, whatever. So that would be a reasonable threshold for me. But is there a sort of something that the companies are shooting for where they're like, we get that, then we're good, this issue is solved? Um, no, I don't think there's an upper limit. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think as more and more investment goes into this technology, um, you know, we've seen some recent battery announcements uh, from some companies that suggest that they could get thousand kilometer range. So I don't think there's necessarily an upper limit. The question will be, um, can we get battery costs to a point where um, the gap between an internal combustion engine vehicle and an, an EV is effectively eliminated um, completely? That's going to be the challenge because um, right now the batteries are more expensive. That's just the reality, particularly when you start talking about long-range batteries for a larger vehicle, which again, North Americans love. Um, a larger vehicle means a larger battery. So that drives costs as well. So um, I don't think there's necessarily an upper limit that anyone set. Um, I, I think it's going to be a, a factor of, you know, can we do it at, a, at an affordable price point? The other um, thing to note, just to your point, which is really important about you know, how do customers think about range? Uh, yeah, most people, you know, the majority of your driving is to and from your place of work around your city or what have you. Um, but people like to know that they have the ability to do that long road trip. And what's going to make that possible with EVs is fast charging. Um, we need widespread fast charging across this country so that even if you have a vehicle that has a range of 300 kilometers, you know that there's going to be places to stop every 50 or 100 kilometers on highway 
and you can get a charge quickly. You're not sitting there for two hours. You know, fast charging can get you up to 80% in 10 to, to 30 minutes. So that's what we're going to need to make this possible for most Canadians. Maybe we can just even tease out even further the uh, issue of kind of cost and infrastructure, because it is when you're talking about like a 500 kilometer range, that's like the range of a, of a tank of, of gas. And so, but the only reason that people aren't okay with that is because the charging infrastructure isn't, and they don't know, it's not like you can just pull into a gas station and it's easy to just fill up once you get to zero. And so um, in terms of, I guess, like actual uh, infrastructure, at what point, uh, at what point do you think that people are going to feel like there is enough infrastructure to uh, reliably be able to, you know, travel across the country, for instance? And um, the other side of that question is like, and at what point specifically cost-wise do people need to see on the final sticker price of the car for them to be like, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm jumping in? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll start with infrastructure. Um, there are a couple things that have to happen here. First, 80% of, of EV drivers right now, and this is from numerous studies, charge at home. Um, and that's the benefit of an EV. You can plug it in at night and you can charge at home. But what that misses is the fact that a lot of Canadians, up to one third of Canadians, do not have access to parking at home. They might live in a multi-unit residential building, so mm. they park on the street, they park in a tower. Um, so they're going to be in a really challenging position because they will need to depend on public charging infrastructure. For the Canadians that are thinking about making the switch, and and you know they they'll drive on the highway, they'll do a road trip every now and again. We have to get past that psychological barrier. Um, around charging infrastructure. And what I mean by that is they need to see it. It has to be ubiquitous in high profile places. So, you know, I drive from Toronto to Ottawa far more than I would like to. And the on routes uh, are a classic roadside stop. Right. They have some charging now. But when you think about the throughput that goes through 12 pumps at a gas station there and compare that to what you would need in equivalent DC fast charging, we are not even close to being at a point where you could actually have uh, an en route ready to service the entire 401 fleet as it comes through. Um, so we've got to build more and it has to be high profile. And I think that that will help um, people that are nervous about this make the switch. Um, but just to leave you with a couple of, of numbers, um, right now we've got about 23,000 public fast chargers in this country. And these are the government's estimates. They suggest that um, by 2030, if we're going to support about 4.6 million EVs on the road, we're going to need 200,000 public fast chargers. So um, we got a lot to build in a very, very short period of time. And I would argue that target is frankly not ambitious enough. If you look at a place like California, um, they they put a lot more money into this and they would argue for a much bigger ratio of chargers to EVs. So we got to get building um, because we know that if someone has a bad experience, they make the switch they're inconvenienced and they go back to gas, it's really hard to win them back as a customer into an electric vehicle. What is the sort of equivalent that you would need to match uh, an en route, for example? Like if we were gonna say, we want the same throughput for EVs as we get through internal combustion engine vehicles at an en route for that 401 traffic, uh, how many chargers would you need to uh, well, I'll give you a great example. Uh, this is from the U.S. where some work has been done by, uh, by NHTSA, um, our, our equivalent uh, to Transport Canada. Um, 
So if you converted an only electrification, so full, uh, not just light duty, but also the heavy duty fleet, all those transport mm. trucks you see, um, it would require the electricity capacity of uh, either a professional sports stadium, um, full capacity in the midst of a game, uh, or or a city, you know, the size of Belleville. Um, between that that range, wow. like we're talking about a massive electricity draw, um, and that those are the types of estimates that we see people making. That uh, you know, frankly, keep me up at night because we're driving towards this very aggressive target, but we know a lot has to be done in terms of infrastructure, not just building the actual public facing ports. But there's huge grid infrastructure that has to go in place. Think about all the transformers and lines that are necessary to go to those facilities and provide that electricity uh, to the the ultimate end user. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems like the sort of thing when you think about it, it's like, oh, why don't we just put in some chargers at every gas station? But uh, it's actually a lot more work involved in it than that. Brian, if there, we, I guess we've touched on a couple of times, like that. There's like a lot to be. There's a lot to be done. Um, so what are kind of like the steps that are in motion in terms of getting enough chargers? I guess we could stick with chargers because that seems to be like a massive hurdle. But like I struggle to wrap my head around like I'm wondering here, like, is there even enough electricity to be able to power these these stations? Like, do are we even set up to make kind of the early steps when it comes to rolling this out? Yeah, Um I, I would, I would, you know, to answer very shortly, I would say no. I don't think we've thought through um, all of the things that have to happen to actually get us to that target. You know, the target that's been established, 100% light duty electric vehicle sales by 35 is is ambitious. And automakers, you know, we're supportive of of the direction the governments are going because we're bringing the vehicles into market. Um, you're going to see. Um, a full suite of, of electrics across every every segment. You already do, but it's only going to get better over the next couple of years. Um, so this is happening. The transformation and the transition is happening. But I'd say what worries us is that we don't see that completely coordinated plan in place between not just the federal government. I, I would argue they have a leadership role to play here because they've set the target. Um, but provinces um, and all of the utilities that, that they uh, are responsible for and work with on electricity distribution, and even municipalities have a role to play here. If you look at a country like uh, Norway, great example that gets held up all the time as a leader in this space, uh, they offered all sorts of incentives at a more municipal level. So free parking, um, access to, uh, to toll roads for free. There's things that every level of government can do to help make this transition. Um, but I don't see it all coming together. We've spent a lot of time focusing on the target. Um, but how do we get there? And infrastructure is a great example. Even if we take the government's target of two, 200,000 chargers, are we on a path right now to have those built by 2030? I would argue that given we're sitting at 23,000 and we're building about 5,000 a year, I don't see any pathway to that 2030 target unless there's an immediate acceleration in our ability uh, to, uh, to actually construct this infrastructure. And then lastly... Um, you know, you mentioned the actual electricity generation. That's another huge component to this. I mean, the whole benefit, the environmental benefit of electric vehicles comes from the fact that you charge them using clean electricity, right? If you're using a coal fire grid, this doesn't really make sense. Um, and Ontario is in a good spot. We've got a clean electricity grid, but Ontario is estimating to, to make the grid completely renewable 
and upgrade all the infrastructure through to 2050. That's about a $400 billion spend. So, you know, big, big price tags here. And uh, I don't think we've adequately thought through how we pay for that and how we start that transition. So just a quick follow-up on that. Maybe you can help me reconcile all these different numbers that we're hearing about, because I find it really interesting, right? That we're hearing now that, okay, currently 1% of the cars on the road are EVs. We need so many more chargers. We need the price to come down thousands of dollars. We need the electricity grid to be able to support all these charging stations. And yet we're sitting here, you know, reading headlines about factories that are getting built like right now, like tomorrow. And then we're also, you know, seeing headlines um, about other types of investments that are kind of going towards this industry, right? So how do you reconcile all of these? And that's without even mentioning the targets that are going to be in place just a decade out. So how do you reconcile kind of all of these, this mismatch of mix, <laughs> mix match of data? Yeah, there, there, uh, there is a, there's a mismatch between um, the speed with which industry is working uh, to bring these vehicles, um, but the supports that we need to actually make it happen. And by supports, I mean the, the, the infrastructure. Um, that has to be in line with the targets that are being established by governments. Um, because if we don't have those aligned, then, then we're going to have challenges where people are either inconvenienced, don't like the technology and push back against it. And, and that can't happen because this, this transformation, you know, the horse has left the barn. Uh, electrification is the way to go. The total spend from automakers globally is over $1.2 trillion. Um, so, you know, we know that this is the, the promising technology that can help us reduce emissions and deliver the performance that consumers want. Um, but yeah, if we don't, if we don't match that with the infrastructure, we will be in a very problematic situation. Good news is we've seen jurisdictions that have done a pretty good job. I'll go back to Norway as an example. They've built a lot of infrastructure um, to address the costs and affordability issue. They provided massive incentives to their citizens in the form of a 25% VAT reduction, um, which you know basically made it a no-brainer. If you went to buy a new vehicle, um, the the choice between electric and gas it was obvious because the cost difference was so significant. So um, you know those are the types of things that we need to be considering if we want to move those targets and, and hit those targets at the speed that governments establish. You know, you talk about the amount that the automakers have invested in rolling out these new vehicles, and it strikes me, just as we've been talking about the charging issue, that it's going to be uh, the success of that investment, I think it sounds like is going to be driven, at least in part, by the success of the rollout of charging infrastructure. Like a customer satisfaction with their vehicle is in large part dependent on whether they can get a charger, and that's out of your hands, you know, it's out of the hands of GM and Ford and yes. so on. So are they, are the automakers doing anything? Are they investing in charging businesses or anything like that to try to improve that customer experience? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we've seen a number of big announcements recently. Um, seven OEMs um, just uh, came together and formed a, basically a JV to build over 30,000 chargers, fast chargers in North America. Um, if you look at what the OEMs are doing with their dealerships, um, they're requiring charging installation at dealerships because they're usually well located. Um, I'm sorry, what is an OEM? Just sorry, uh, an original equipment manufacturer. So an, an automotive company. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so yes, they are. They are absolutely investing in it, um, uh, but they won't 
be in a position to build the the complete North American network. That will be left up to others to do so. And um, you know, I think the the thing that makes it challenging at this point in the transformation is that because there are so few EVs on the road, right? That one percent figure, the private sector imperative to invest money in charging is very, very limited, right? If you were to just go open up your own charging station on a corner somewhere, you're not going to see enough EVs and enough throughput there on a daily basis. Even if you're selling some you know, chips and pop in a stand or whatever, um, you are not going to be able to generate enough business to make that profitable. And that's why there's a role for government now. We need to overbuild before we actually have a full a uh, large EV fleet on the road so that those challenges and those frictions are addressed early. Um, so it's kind of a unique point in this transformation where we've got, we've got to effectively build an infrastructure that might not be used immediately. Interesting. So is that how places like Norway solve that chicken and egg problem through government supports? Yes, huge government supports. They put in place uh, some legislation, the right to charge, which gives uh, apartment dwellers um, actual uh, ability to demand charging in their buildings. They set very clear targets uh, on highways, so charging stations every 50 kilometers. Um, so there are things you can do that, that um, establish clear targets um, other than what we've done in Canada, which is just here's the number of chargers we need, here's some money, um, and then open up a government program. I think we've got to be more thoughtful in how we build this out. Yeah. Could you give us a snapshot, I guess, like on the government piece of like what our government's approach to this is? And I know that it's a complicated answer because we're talking about three different levels of, of government. But overall, I mean, what has the government's strategy been in your view and Maybe, I mean, have they learned from experiences elsewhere around the world to, to make little tweaks and, and changes in terms of how they, how they approach the, the same problem here? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first, I, I have to give them credit for recognizing that this is a serious barrier and impediment to adoption. Um, they put over the past few budgets, a total of $1.2 billion by the federal government into charging. Um, so that's a good start. Um, that's that's a, a serious commitment. Um, they've established um, uh, a program, a federal funding program that, that people can apply for to get that funding and build chargers. Um, so that's encouraging. Um, what I'd like to see, if I, if I were in charge, uh, I'd like to see a clear connection between the targets that the environment ministry has set. We're about to see what's called a zero emission vehicles regulation be introduced in Canada, which effectively dictates the sales of vehicles in this country on an annual basis from 2035, we need to tie those targets directly to the infrastructure that's required. Um, because if not, we can't hit the targets. And that's going to be a real problem for hitting our emissions reductions uh, goals, but also for EV adoption. And as I mentioned at the outset, the EVs are coming. That's that's uh, That ship's not turning around. We need those supports. So I think there's a, a bit of a disconnect between targets and the infrastructure bill. Uh, can I ask you a little bit about costs and EVs? Because right now, you know, you've mentioned in this conversation that one of the barriers for people is that the costs tend to be a little bit higher. Um, is that price gap ever going to close? Like, are we ever going to get to the point where an EV costs the same as a comparable uh, non-EV? Uh, without government subsidies? And if so, what needs to change for that gap to close? 
Um, yeah, the, so the, the current gap in Canada, um, the what's called the consumer-facing transaction price, which is ultimately what, what the consumer pays uh, when they leave the dealership. There's a gap now between um, an electric vehicle and a gas-powered vehicle of about $14,000. Um, now, when you survey Canadians, what are your two main sort of concerns or barriers to adoption? It's always the same two answers. It's either number one is either affordability and price, and two is infrastructure or in reverse order. Those are always the key concerns. Um, so that gap has to close. That's the reason that we have government incentives that helps to, to close those uh, price gaps. There's been a lot of great work done that shows um, consumers what they will save over time by switching to an EV, because of course, you're not purchasing fuel anymore. But what we find is that even if you can convincingly um, show somebody, look, over 10 years, this is going to cost you less because you're not paying fuel, um, very few consumers think that way. Um, they go to buy a vehicle. They want to get the most vehicle they can for the amount that they've dedicated in their budget on a monthly basis um, and don't necessarily think about those long-term savings. Some do, but it's just generally it's, it's a harder case to make. So the gap needs to close, uh, and it need, we need to see price parity, I think, um, to, uh, to address that affordability challenge. And that really depends on vehicle size. Uh, for a smaller vehicle with a smaller battery pack, closing that price gap is going to happen much quicker um, because the battery is just cheaper um, to build. If we're talking about a larger SUV or a pickup truck that wants to have the equivalent range of a current uh, gas-powered pickup truck, um, that's going to take a bit longer. Uh, we could be looking towards the end of this decade before the technology gets to a point where that larger battery um, is effectively the same price as an equivalent gas-powered engine. So, so it's really battery costs is the main driver of that? Battery cost is a huge, huge driver. And we've seen a lot of fluctuations over the past few years in critical minerals uh, prices um, as mm. demand for battery input surges. Um, you know, the best example I can give you is from Benchmark Minerals. Um, they do a lot of forecasting on global um, mining commodity prices. Um, if you look at the commitments that automakers have made, as well as other industries for electrification, they're estimating we're going to need over 300 new mines built globally uh, to mine all of the minerals, things like lithium, to support this emerging supply chain. So, you know, that's costly. That takes time. But those are the types of things that will impact battery pricing going forward. Is that part of the reason why there's such a concentrated effort to bring supply chains closer to home? Like, I know that there's like this, like kind of this protectionism that we're seeing, the friend shoring, the near shoring, that people want these supply chains closer to home. But is, is part of that also just an effort to bring costs down? Or is that not really how it works because a mine in Canada is, is in any way when you factor in just labor and costs, it's, it's going to be cheaper than importing uh, the cost. I'm just wondering how that plays into the investments that we've that we've seen. Is there any consideration for costs there with trying to bring these supply chains closer to home, or is that a completely different issue? I think it's largely geopolitical. Um, if it. you look at the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know th there was a clear thread throughout it uh, around the U.S. reducing its dependence on China, in particular, and some of these. Um, strategically important sectors and batteries is one that you know has has been dominated by China. You know, well over eighty percent of the supply chain, the battery supply chain, one way or another, runs through uh, China or a Chinese-controlled company. Um, so I think that's what you're seeing is the geopolitics in play. Um, and the upside here is that Canada, we're in the tent. 
We're, we're considered uh, part of the North American market here, and, and the Biden administration has deemed us as a, as a supplier, um, a friendly supplier for those inputs. So um, yes, it's costly in Canada, no doubt. We have long permitting processes. I could go on about that forever. Um, but, uh, but I think because this, this uh, effort is being made to bring this to North America, it actually gives us a very unique economic opportunity. I want to get into that economic opportunity, but just to clarify, so we're we're making it out how to make cheap EVs. Um, could hypothetically just kind of we could just lean on that and export in all the cars, but there there isn't an interest to do that. This is exactly what we're seeing play out in Europe right now, uh, where Chinese EVs um, have started to gain market share. Right. Um, you know, by some projections, we're on on a pace for you know in excess of 15 percent market share. Uh, and now the European Commission has come out and launched uh, an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese-produced EVs. Uh, from a North American context, look, I think we've got to connect our environmental policy with our economic policy, which is what the Biden administration has done in the IRA. Um, you know, you could swing the doors open and say, look, let's let's flood the market with uh, with cheaper, highly subsidized Chinese EVs that are produced, um, you know, perhaps to an environmental standard that we're not comfortable with. Um, but then that would have severe economic consequences. So we've got to do this in lockstep uh, in a way that that supports our North American industry and our environmental objectives. Can can we, we stay on China for a second? Because I do want to talk about uh, how they're producing EVs so that are so cheap. Like BYD, I think, has one on the market now for $11,000 US. Um, how is that possible? A couple of things at play. Um, First of all, um, if you look at the EVs that are produced specifically in the Chinese market and other uh, markets close by, um, it's a different type of vehicle uh, that people demand and drive. Um, smaller, uh, many instances, three-wheel vehicles are hugely popular. Um, so obviously, the price uh, of those types of vehicles is going to be quite a bit lower. Right. Um, secondly, subsidization. Um, you know, the, if, the, if you look at the subsidization cost per Chinese vehicle, um, there's huge government uh, support and intervention in the market uh, to to help them um, succeed in that transformation. So that's a huge component of it, and that's why you've seen the EU uh, the EU anti subsidy case. Uh, lastly, I would just note: I think the you know, the question will be, um, particularly with North American vehicles, we drive. We have a unique fleet in this uh, continent: larger, more capable four wheel drive is is typically uh, a high consumer demand. So these are all things that you don't necessarily see in Chinese-produced EVs at this point, and that's driving some of the cost differential. Or I guess like the fancy yeah, it would be GPSs. hard to imagine switching from like a Silverado to a three-wheel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably not realistic in uh, in in a Canadian context outside of a very urban setting. Yeah, it's like, yeah. a, it's like a tuk-tuk okay. with no, no doors. Um, okay, uh, we talk about, so if we've decided that the economic opportunity is here, we're going to build a supply chain here. I'd love to ask you kind of what that, what that looks like. We've heard um, announcements as it pertains to factories, as it pertains to critical minerals. Could we just have a quick overview on like what the entire EV supply chain looks like um, if we keep it in North America and where Canada can realistically kind of play within that supply chain? Sure. Yeah. I think we're, um, I, I genuinely believe we're in a very, very um, uh, good situation when you compare Canada to other countries around the world um, because of a number of factors that position us well to, to win in this transformation. First of all, we have five OEMs that manufacture here. They have a footprint, they assemble vehicles. 
um, that's a great starting point. And a lot of countries would, <laughs> would, would kill to have that type of um, OEM uh, footprint in their country. Uh, we have a relatively clean electricity grid. If you look at some of the recent big announcements that have uh, been, uh, been unveiled here in Canada for battery plants, for example, or cathode anode material plants in, in Quebec, having access to clean electricity is hugely important to that to those decisions. Doing that in, you know, in a southern U.S. state where you've got a coal-fired grid, it doesn't make sense because this transition is about lowering emissions. And if you can't build it uh, with low uh, emission electricity, you're in a difficult position. Uh, we've obviously got a very skilled labor force uh, because of our history of, of building vehicles and uh, strong immigration policies. Um, and then last and, and certainly not least, we just happen to be sitting on a huge abundance of critical minerals. Um, and, you know, this has been well documented, but the, we have virtually every mineral input you need in a battery uh, somewhere uh, in this country in the ground. So you bring all that together and then add on top of it direct free trade access into the United States, the biggest market in the world. It makes a compelling case to do more of this activity in Canada. What will be a challenge for us, though, is first the U.S. I mentioned the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and how it kind of deals us in. Um, that's encouraging. But the downside is uh, these subsidies that the Americans have unveiled are unprecedented. And they are very compelling for companies to do everything in the United States. We've got to compete with the Americans um, if we're going to win this investment. And secondly, we actually have to move with a bit of urgency. Um, it's hard in Canada to permit and activate a large-scale natural resource project. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about the critical minerals opportunity, but if you tell an investor, you know, you're talking 10, 15, 20 years between initial thought and final uh, production, uh, I think folks are going to go elsewhere. So we've got to get in front mm -hmm. of that. I was, um, I was talking to a couple of economists yesterday, coincidentally, about this, and they expressed that they were worried about how much investment was flowing into the U.S. relative to Canada um, with, uh, obviously, uh, with, the, with the incentives kind of built in from, from the IRA and that being kind of a huge draw away from Canadian investment at a time where we kind of need it most. Um, do you share that same concern? Uh, why or why not? And I guess how well equipped are we to address the IRA kind of head on in terms of what we can offer? Yeah, I, I do share the concern. And frankly, we can't address the IRA head on. The, the Americans have uh, fiscal firepower that we will simply never be able to match. Um, the IRA put approximately 370 billion US um, towards um, uh, climate change initi initiatives with a huge amount of that um, in direct incentives in the form of either you know, tax credits or other subsidies. Um, so we can't. We can't match the Americans on the IRA. It's just too big. Um, what we can do, though, is be strategic about sectors of the economy that we want to make sure um, we continue to support and will compete with the U.S. So auto, I think, is an example of where we've been successful. We've seen about $30 billion in new investments since 2020 into Canada. Most of that is dedicated to um, either uh, converting existing manufacturing plants to EV assembly uh, battery plants or other components of the supply chain. And that's because uh, full credit to the federal government and provincial partners, they were clear, we're going to compete with the IRA in these areas and make sure that um, there's no company can say that, well, it's better to go to the US because there's more on the table. We've competed, we stepped up and we've won those investments. 
Um, but overall, from a broader economic perspective, yeah, I'm worried. Um, it, it's, it's a giant investment vacuum uh, that President Biden has activated, um, and it, it creates a lot of incentive for, for companies to be uh, stateside. So just to clarify that, our only hope really is just to get very strategic in the specific areas where we want to compete, car making being one of them. That's exactly right. Um, and there, there are definitely other sectors that I, I won't uh, speak for, but we have to be strategic. We have to decide, because what the Americans did is they, they've used um, largely fully refundable tax credits that apply across a range of sectors. Um, so it's a very simple type of incentive that many different types of companies can access. Um, we just can't do that. We don't have the funds to do that. But what we can do is use specific tools, like we have something called the Strategic Innovation Fund, which is a support program um, that Minister Champagne and Industry Canada operates. We've got to use those types of funds to determine where do we have an advantage? Where do we see the most economic potential? Okay, let's compete here and make sure that that we are on a level playing field with the U.S., and what about when it comes to labor? You talked about how you know some of these factories have to be effectively refurbished. There's also a pretty big skills gap between the workers that would make an EV battery um, and that are putting together a gas-powered vehicle. What is that transition in terms of being able to bring along the labor force and like having the thousands of workers that you need at the next you know Volkswagen factory? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big question. Um, well, first of all, when it comes to the existing labor force, highly skilled and automakers with union partners um, are working to, to re- not to retrain, but to basically upskill to make sure that people that right now may be working at an engine plant um, will be able to transition to um, a new technology. So that's going to happen in real time. Um, I, I think what's more concerning is, is just sort of the broader demographic trends that we see in Canada. Um, some recent um, estimates of the auto industry um, suggest that between now and 2030, we're looking at about 45,000 employees in Ontario and Quebec alone that will need to be replaced due to just retirement. Um, so this is that demographic wave uh, that's coming upon us. So you add in that, uh, the, the retirement demographic trends, plus the desire for new skill sets in some of these very unique areas. Um, and new investments. We've just seen, you know, VW has announced that they're going to build a, a sizable battery plant here. Northfold is doing something similar um, in Quebec. So that's going to pull on, on the labor market as well. Um, so immigration, again, a unique Canadian advantage that you don't necessarily see in other jurisdictions. Um, but it will be a challenge going forward, making sure that we've got the right people with the right skill sets. Do the demographics and car making skew a bit older? Just because I'm hearing also about like partnerships with like colleges and car makers being more and more of a thing. And I, I wonder if that's strategic in the sense of like getting really young people into these these factories right out of school. Yes, that's absolutely happening right now. We're seeing new programs uh, coming into, into place that are aimed at trying to bring in and, and uh, train um, younger people. Um, yeah, there generally is, um, uh, particularly when you look at some of the facilities um, that uh, that my members operate. Um, you know, you've got these are these are really good unionized jobs, and people like to work there for for a long time. So that demographic wave is kind of following the same trend we see in the broader Canadian economy, which it's an aging uh, de- demographic that's only being offset somewhat by immigration. 
I think anyone listening and me even just being in this conversation, you look at this and this seems like a massive effort and it seems like there's so many barriers that need to be overcome. It seems like there's also a lot of other, you know, areas of the economy where, you know, emissions are also uh, a massive problem that we could maybe be focusing on as as well. And so I guess to to help bring it home for me, I would just want to ask you, what, you know, why is it important to focus on this right now? And like what what happens if we just don't? What happens if we just didn't do any of this? We didn't do any of these investments. We didn't do any of these reskilling. And we just kind of let the market do what it wants to do and let people keep driving their their gas-powered cars. What would what what would happen if we just did that? Well, first of all, um, I'd say that you know the transition is happening no matter what. So even if government stepped back and said, uh, you know, we don't have targets anymore, um, uh, we're just going to let things play out. Um, the transformation is happening because the companies have made huge investments in this, um, and they're creating this supply chain literally as we speak. Um, so, so this is going to happen. Um, I, you know, I think the, the the question will be: Can we do it uh, at a pace that doesn't cause inconvenience or challenge for Canadians? Because I know we've you know we've talked about all of those issues, which which could make people um, really really hesitate here. So, I think we've got to get that that mix right in terms of. You know, what does this mean for emissions? Look, I think, I think the auto fleet, um, sometimes uh, people overestimate what it contributes to emissions because it is so visible, right? You see it every single day, cars on the street with tailpipes. Uh, but total emissions in Canada from the light duty fleet, we're talking about 12% of emissions. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's not insignificant by any means, um, but is it ultimately going to be you know that that one thing that that allows us to achieve our emissions reductions targets? No, um, I think what makes it so promising though is that we're at a point for light duty vehicles in particular where we know the technology is good, it works, and it's only getting better. And I think that's why there's a lot of attention and excitement around it because if we look at other sectors of the economy, even think about heavy duty trucks, right? I mean, you go out on the highway and there's a lot of transport trucks. Their technology just isn't there yet. A lot of companies have put money into it and we're seeing some electrified semis, um, but we're just not at a point where you could have a mass turnover of the transport truck fleet to electrification. So I think uh, I think that's why there is attention on, on the auto fleet because we know the technology's good, it's there. Uh, we just have to get past some of those barriers and, and we can get to a point where we're on a much... A higher adoption curve. That's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Brian, for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Time. Really interesting stuff. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this and want more episodes, you can check out all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And please head over to the Apple Podcasts app or the Spotify app and leave us a positive review. Really would appreciate that. Today's episode was hosted by myself, Taylor Scollin, along with Sarah Bartnika. Thank you to Brian Kingston and thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week.